I'm Bryony and I've been working in the domestic abuse sector for 15 years. Um, I'm also uh, a youth worker with a particular interest in working with young people around healthy relationships and supporting LGBT plus young people um, to explore their identities. And I'm Naomi um, and I um, am also a youth worker. I've um, worked in the sector on and off for the last 25 years um, and I have a particular interest in um, helping young people identify toxic and unhealthy relationships um, and share education around criminality and exploitation. Um, and I'm really interested um, in this research. It's been really insightful. So um, we're hoping to share some points today in this very short podcast. So the reason that we're putting this together is that um, Safe Lives is running a specific piece of work um, around talking to young men and boys um, about healthy relationships and also how we talk to young people in general about healthy relationships. And there was some research done in 2019 with um, just over a thousand men asking them about abuse, masculinity and what a so-called healthy relationship looks like. So um, looking at the analysis of that research, Safe Lives found that almost half of the men asked agreed that they were confident that they knew what domestic abuse is um, and almost half agreed it is a major issue and more than a third agreed that domestic abuse can impact a person's mental and emotional health. So a lot of understanding around domestic abuse um, much more than we might expect when we're talking to the general population. Almost 30% of those men said they demonstrated behaviour in their relationships with regrets, and more than half said the behaviour happened between the ages of 16 and 29, which really illustrates how important it is that we are having these conversations with young people. Over 80% of the men said they felt bad about it, and almost 40% said their own behaviour had scared them. So Safe Lives then completed a, a literature review and found a connection between power, violence and love. Um, and interestingly, in one study, they found that teenage males had said they would use violence to maintain power and were unsure of boundaries between playing, harassment and abuse, whereas females suggested use of violence was a reflection of love. So really interesting seeing the kind of gendered nature of those understandings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And um, additionally, as part of that research, um, we then looked at um, harmful sexual behaviours and found that um, two thirds of contact sexual abuse was actually committed by other children and young people. And we also found that um, young people who commit sexually abusive acts are more likely to have experienced physical or sexual abuse, as well as ne neglect and domestic abuse within their own homes. Um, and on top of this, there's also um, a lack of positive male role models and, or parents with mental health or substance misuse issues um, that can also impact behaviour. So um, following this research, um, following this research, we then done some roundtables where we invited around 30 organisations and the conversations that came from those roundtables, um, we found that most of us agreed on um, on similar things and the, cons the key considerations that we found um, from these roundtables were, so what we found, <laughs> what we all agreed on um, was there was a lack of support services for boys and men, therefore they often only get referred for help following engagement with statutory services um, such as um, yachts, um, or um, many don't receive help until after crisis point, um, which is a real indication um, 
a real indication that we need to intervene earlier. So lack of a provision around that kind of education, awareness raising or, or early intervention is resulting in, in only support being available when we're in a crisis for these young men. Yeah. And that came up for, for most of those organisations on the roundtables, didn't it? Um, we also heard that positive modelling of healthy relationships is really key to working with young people, especially with boys and young men who may have no model to work from. So if they're growing up in an abusive home or communities that experience high rates of violence, that can mean that that behaviour is, is really normalised for those young people. Um, and so if nobody's challenging that and services aren't there to kind of educate or, um, or inform, then, then those young people don't don't have those kind of ideas about what could be different. Yeah, and that's a really important point around um, the modelling, the positive role modelling. Um, and I think um, additionally, on, on top of that, we found that um, relationships that take place around boys and young men um, are often linked to their gender norms, which are then reinforced through things like social media, music, film and other outlets. And um, we found that social media is a key place where messaging about unhealthy relationships can take place. So these young, some young people may not have positive um, models in their own homes, within their communities. And then even like social media, when you think of like, you know, the social media, we've got access to the world um, and they're still having negative negative um, models and reinforcements through um, the things that they might be accessing on social media. And additionally, um, we also found that um, young people as, as young as 11 are um, accessing pornography. And this can um, this can really um, influence their understanding of what a positive sexual relationship should look like. This comes up a lot on the Yip for training that we run at Safe Lives, um, the kind of influence of, of the internet generally, but also access to pornographic material um, or pornographic imagery and how that affects how young people feel about sexual relationships. And, um, and with the lack of standardised sex education in schools, how that's impacting on where young people are learning. They're learning from their peers, from each other, and they're learning from what they see online. And often the, um, the sexual relationships that we see played out there are, are really unhealthy and the dynamics are, um, are often very controlling and potentially violent. So, yeah, that was something that came up a lot. Um, the roundtable participants also talked about how early childhood trauma can change the lens of what young people see and accept as behaviours. And we know there's a, there's a lot of research out there that supports this and that normalisation. So young people who grow up in those households where there is neglect, domestic abuse, substance use, if parent, there's parental mental health concerns, that can have an adverse effect on the children living in the home. And that can result in them being more likely to use harmful behaviours such as violence towards others um, so understanding that early childhood trauma and the impact it has is really crucial for any practitioners working with children and young people because it will be affecting their day-to-day -day lives yeah and, and that's an interesting point because a lot of um sometimes when um children and young people are impacted by these things it may come out in like negative behaviors um and so when we see um a child um especially like at school and um, that's constantly getting in trouble or lashing out and um, they may be um penalized for that rather than um you know being pulled to a side and and somebody just taking that time to ask them like you know um 
what's happening for them. And um, Ian Wright recently done a documentary called um, Home Truths, um, which is accessible on BBC iPlayer, um, which I was um, also a part of. And um, what I really liked about that documentary um, was Ian Wright reflected on his own experience um, within his home, growing up in a house um, with, with um, abuse and um, how that really impacted his life. And he mentioned um, about his behaviours at school, um, generally being disruptive in the class. However, there were a lack of support um, lots of lack of supports back then. Um, visited his old school, and um, there was a teacher there who um, really picked up on on um, recognizing that children's um, behaviours are normally a reaction to something. Um, so rather than label them as bad, um, they like to spend time mentoring that child and working with that child to find out what else is happening um, within their life. To really, um, to really help them, um, and that's part of the early intervention and initiating the conversations earlier. If you don't give somebody that safe space to talk and be able to express what's happening, then all you're going to get is behaviours escalating. Yeah, I thought that was brilliantly done, the way they explored the kind of how the children and young people acting in that school environment was um, was stuff they were bringing in from outside in their lives. And the, the problem is that for schools, often they're targeting the behaviour and seeing it as a disruptive or labelling it as attention seeking rather than going, OK, this young person's distressed. They are seeking my attention. Why do they need my attention? What can I do? And I know that, that for teachers, obviously, that's often a capacity issue, but it was really Really fantastic to see in that documentary that um, that school had particular support in place for young people who were, were struggling and um, and was looking at addressing the, the causes of that behaviour. Yeah, I thought it was really well done. It'd be great if we could have that in every school, um, people to have those conversations with young people and find out what's going on for them and how they're feeling. Definitely. I agree. I agree. And when we explore that further, um, you know, um, we looked at some research um, from um, Janine Davis around um, the adultification of um, children and young people and how this can impact how they are seen by services and teachers. For example, um, a young black male age 14 may be um, seen as more adults than um, his peers and his white peers. Therefore, more responsibility uh, might be placed on them to take accountability for their actions um, rather than investigations behind what caused the behaviour. So again, I think um, going back to um, what you just said around like, you know, it's really important that um, we have teachers and mentors placed in schools that can have these conversations earlier with our young men and um, boys before, um, before it escalates. So it would be useful to think about how we can initiate conversations earlier. So that's, you know, us as practitioners, not necessarily based in schools, but anyone that's working with, with children and young people in any context, I suppose. Like what, what sort of things do you think are most important when we're looking at initiating conversations early on, not at a point of crisis? Yeah, um, well, I think um, the first point, and I think everyone agreed with this around the round table, um, was about using a trauma-informed approach and um, understanding that behaviour may not be, although behaviour may not be seen as right by um, the wider society, um, it's 
the behaviour that has become normalised in that young person's world or it is behaviour that is a reaction to um, something that they're going through. So we really need to um, make sure that when we're saying um, that we are trauma-informed, we are, um, you know, really doing the training and the learning around being trauma-informed so we can receive these um, young people and initiate the conversations earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that creation of, of safe spaces and safe relationships where those conversations can happen is really crucial, isn't it? And yeah, being trauma informed as practitioners is something that, that we can all do. But also thinking about how we build those trusting relationships um, that, that create space for really honest conversations um, about behaviour and feelings, because especially when we're working with uh, boys and young men who aren't necessarily socialised to talk about feelings. Um, you know, that's very a very societal norm. It's very gendered that we, we don't necessarily expect boys and young men to talk about their feelings, to express emotions in healthy ways. And therefore, it, it can be really difficult for, for a lot of young people to do that. So how we build those relationships and create places where young people feel safe is going to be really crucial. And that means that we... Um, we want to build relationships that are kind of transparent, have really clear boundaries around what we're doing, um, being really clear about where the information or the conversation that we're having with that young person, where that's going to go if we have to pass yeah. information on to other people. So, yeah, how we build that relationship in the first place is going to create a platform that then we can have those those conversations. Um, and that, yeah, that's going to be really crucial, isn't it? Yeah, um, I agree. And um, around like um, what you said there um, about facilitating that safe space environment and trusting relationships, um, that came up a lot in the research in terms of, um, you know, um, young men and boys are going to disclose or talk about these um, difficult things. Um, with somebody that they already trust. Um, so it can be really difficult, um, you know, and there's an expectation on, you um, a young person being referred to a service and an expectation on them just to initially start talking about what it is they're going through um, and that can lead to a young person either being um, dishonest or incongruent about what is really happening because they're only going to tell the people that they trust and like you said it's all those things um, that young person knowing that when you when they do give you some information you're being really clear and transparent about where that information is going to go. Oh, and that's what we all want isn't it like that's what's so important when we think about how we work with young people like how would we want someone to work with us like if we sat in a room and someone expected us to share our life story without knowing if they were a safe person to tell without knowing what they were going to do with that information we wouldn't want to do that and we shouldn't expect a young person to want to do that either you know we've that's got to good. yeah create that environment that feels safe and and put effort into building that trusting relationship before we can expect young people to to tell us anything and like you say that can result if we've not got the time or the space for that relationship that can result in young people maybe not not giving us all of the information or maybe giving us um, wrong information because they don't feel safe to share the truth and the, so then that that's kind of framed often as young people misleading or lying to us when actually what they're doing is protecting themselves um, because they didn't feel safe to share so that's something that we all need to be thinking about when we're having those conversations 
Exactly. And then the impact of having that trusted um, relationship with um, somebody who is a positive role model, um, somebody with the lived experience um, can help a, peer, help a person feel as if it's um, not their fault and they're not alone in this. Um, so they really have a model of somebody that's gone through probably similar circumstances. And um, so they can see that light at the top at the end of the tunnel, because it's really, really difficult to see when you're in it. Um, and um, as a result of that, then, um, you know, um, the young person um, might start to mirror and model the behaviour on that positive um, role model. So that's yeah, really so in the same way that those negative patterns can be normalised for a young person as as people building those positive relationships where you have the opportunity to to create positive behaviours that can be mirrored. I think that's a really important takeaway from those conversations with with the people at the round table and from what we've talked about, Naomi, that, yeah, we have an opportunity in every interaction we have with a young person to role model something positive. And we might not see the results of that straight away. And that can be frustrating. But every time we have a connection or a contact with a young person they're absorbing something from us so we want to make sure that that is positive and healthy stuff that they're taking away so as part of this project um naomi and i had, had just thought about five points that we wanted practitioners to remember when we're talking to to young people and especially with um, boys and young men that we want to be thinking about the language that we're using so the first point is language so making sure that we're um, not using judgmental language that we are listening to how the young person is talking to us and and not you know uh, making sure that we're not using terms that they don't relate to or that they don't understand or explaining if we're saying something we are saying something that maybe they don't understand so not using jargon and also making sure we're not using victim blaming language so that we're being really clear around that the second um point that we were looking at was um the approach um in terms of how we approach these conversation um ensuring that it is more education and information based rather than judgment based and um you know it can be quite easy um easily easily done um in terms of like um having these conversations and then becoming a little bit judgmental because it doesn't fit um your personal ideology of um how um, society functions and really have um, a deep understanding of a person's background um so that's about being like culturally sensitive or competent to an individual so when we're approaching um, when we're approaching people to have these conversations, just having that understanding um, is going to make it a lot easier. So we don't then have to spend time um, asking or inquiring with that young person about their culture and about their background, like because we already know a lot about it to be able to have a conversation about what it feels like for them in their culture or in their communities. So doing that work outside of the session with young people to, to educate ourselves if that's not a community or background that we are, you know, have a good understanding of. Absolutely. Um, so we talked a bit about relationship building. So the third point is around the role of trust and building those relationships. So making sure that we're taking the time that we need to work with a young person rather than having personal deadlines for completions, that flexibility around timelines is, feels really important and engaging in non uh, related activities so thinking about things that aren't just about heavy conversations um, so engaging in kind of fun activities or, or looking at what that young person's interests are um, and is there something we can do with them that speaks to those interests rather than just being about this conversation we want to have with them about a particular topic 
Yeah, and I really like that strategy. And I find, um, especially when, when I'm doing mentoring with um, any young person, um, the first couple of weeks of that men those mentoring sessions will be around doing non-related activities. Um, so we might go to the cinema or go out for food just so we can get to know each other without like diving in like um, and like, oh, well, can you tell me what's happening in your life? Because, you know, that then goes back to um, what we were saying earlier about building that trust. That's part of building the trusting relationship. Um, so that's really, really important. And I think it does work really well in um, building those trusting relationships. Definitely. And it creates a, a space that's not too focused on a particular topic, doesn't it? So I know some of the best conversations I had with young people were actually when we were like side by side doing a creative activity or doing some cooking or when we were, I was driving somewhere. And so there's something about them being next to you and not having to have eye contact, which can really facilitate a conversation. But I think it was also about that they were doing something that they felt relaxed and comfortable um, and they didn't feel a pressure to talk about something particular. Exactly. And by doing those activities, um, that then brings us to our next point, point five, um, four, sorry, um, you really do get to um, see the whole person because you get to see, like, you know, um, who they are as a person and what they like doing and find out a little bit more about them outside of um, the, the trauma or the, the you know, the um, negative experiences that they've had. Um, and then we can start when we go into the deeper conversations now around, like, their um, early childhood experiences or their life experiences we start to build like a bigger picture and we look at all the connections that that young person has such as um, school um, youth club um, community um, the local shops and that um, then brings us to the contextual safeguarding approach which is also um, really important in seeing the whole person and really being able to um, really being able to um, engage with a young person who is vulnerable to um, things such as domestic abuse or um, using calming behaviours. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Seeing that whole whole person, whole picture. Um, obviously, that's a Safe Lives um, strategy and, and a real focus of the work that Safe Lives are talking about in domestic abuse in general. But I think it, that contextual safeguarding approach really highlights the importance of that, doesn't it? And how do we safeguard the young person in front of us? And we need to know all of those connections to be able to do that. And the last thing, the fifth point that we um, we wanted you to just kind of have on your radar is thinking about the role of peers or bystanders, thinking about the environment that that young person is in, because as we've sort of said earlier on, there's um, peers have a really strong influence on young people. Um, they're often the first source of information that, around anything that, that young people have. That we, we tend to learn from those around us. Um, especially in adolescence. So thinking about um, the role that those people play, so linking that to that contextual safeguarding, but then also thinking about the role that we play in um, in educating all the people in an environment. So if we're working with young people in a group setting, whether that's in a centre or in a, like a, a, a group work context or something else, how do we talk to those whole groups about healthy relationships, about attitudes and behaviours? And then how do we empower those young people to feel able to intervene if they see something that's not right or challenge their friends who are using victim blaming language or using sexist um, language or, you know, saying things that are inappropriate? How do we um, equip all of the young people in an environment to do that? 
because those bystander interventions are going to be really important because in the same way that a young person's peer group can condone what they're doing they can also challenge it and that can feel really hard that can feel really hard as an adult so let alone as a young person but it is something that is going to be really crucial to making a difference and and changing those kind of societal cultural attitudes that normalize abusive behavior I, I agree. Um, and I think, um, yeah, the peer group and bystanders is, is really important because um, if we're, say, um, intervening or having interventions around one young person um, and um, that might be away from their community or their peers, um, etc., and they spend two hours with us and it's all really good, they've still got to go back to that community and to those peers and um it can be really difficult then if you feel like you're on your own in the change. Um, and so um, I think that's where the group work comes into it and um, the bystander interventions where we can really get like um, the, the people, the peers and the bystanders that are around um, an individual really involved in that change because um, I don't think it's going to happen just if we're targeting um, individual individual people. It's going to be really, really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And the other real benefit of doing work with groups of young people is that there will be some young people that you'll never engage in a one-to-one conversation about, um, you know, about abusive behaviours or about healthy relationships because they just won't want to have that conversation with you. They might just not want to be one-to-one in a room with a with a practitioner. You might not ever be able to build that relationship that you need. But if you're having that conversation with a group that they are in, then they're going to be absorbing some of that information and taking in some of those messages, even if that's not happening right away, you're kind of planting a seed and, and, and also showing them that you're a safe person to have that conversation with if they ever need to. So, yeah, really, really crucial that group work. OK, well, I hope that's been useful. We've talked to you through some of the concepts. You've got the resources to support you with that. Um, so thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Bryony. Thank you.